Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has said, it's hard for young players to see the big picture. They just see three or four years down the road. Now, if I asked you to think about where you'll be in five years, even three or four years, you most likely would consider that big picture thinking, but that quote shifts our perspective. We need to draw back from the immediacy of the everyday and think longer terms at times, really long-term at times. And as we look at scripture, we need to keep in mind the big picture too, not only thinking verse by verse as we tend to go through scripture in this show. So that's what we're doing today. We're taking a look at a few big picture themes from the book of Esther. Welcome, I'm Michelle Berkey, and this is Praying Scripture, a weekday broadcast where we use God's own words to honor Him and to talk to Him about the things going on in our life and in our world. We are in episode 207 today, and we are going to pray through a few major themes in the book of Esther. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about life and prayer. Life interrupted this show this month in a way that hasn't happened before. I've missed a week here and there, but I've never missed three weeks in a row in the two years or whatever it's been that we've been doing this, over two years, I guess. The last week in May, we got a phone call, my family, I got a phone call, that my ex-husband was in the hospital and he was not expected to make it. And he had asked to see his kids, my son specifically. This wasn't a shock, he had been ill for a long time. It wasn't completely unexpected. But at the last minute, we took off, headed across a few states up to northern Indiana and, uh, and, and back in a very short time. And less than 48 hours after a short evening visit that my son had with him, he passed away. Now, we separated in 2008, I believe, and I have since remarried. So this wasn't a relationship that was current or um, intact. He didn't have any easy or healthy relationships with anyone in his life, and grief is a strange animal. I had already been dealing with a low-level depression this season, and this seemed to kind of kick it into high gear for a few weeks. So I have been practicing this radical grace-giving to myself. Sometimes it's much easier to recognize when other people need rest, and we are quick to encourage them to practice some authentic self-care. I'm not talking about the kind of self-care that is going to the mall and getting a manicure or buying a new shirt, the kind of self-care that really feeds your soul. But often we don't apply the same standards to ourselves. So for the last few years, I've been really thinking a lot about the rhythms of rest in our lives, about God-ordained Sabbath and versus culture-driven relentless speed. And I think that we're going to cover that because it's come up for me again in this time. I think we're going to cover that as one of our Praying Scripture series in the next few months. We've had a set of circumstances this month that are hard, and I really, really appreciate the Facebook comments, the emails and messages that y'all have sent me in support. I really do appreciate that. We still have some walking through of details, the aftermath of my ex's death the practical side of dealing with the stuff, which means, among other things, a trip up north again and moving that we weren't planning on. We have to figure out how to replace one of our cars that has died. But we're working through all these things one day at a time. And I'm learning about giving myself grace and space to process emotion. 
learning about listening more closely to God, to our hearts, and to our bodies. And I would encourage you, if you are in a difficult season or dealing with grief, to lavish grace on yourself and those around you. You can ask, how can I love in the midst of this? What is one small way I can love right now? How can I love God? How can I love myself? And how can I love others? And then we can lean in deeper to our relationships with God in the most authentic ways that you can imagine. So that's kind of where we've been in the last few weeks. It's been a hard couple weeks, but we'll get through it. Switching over to the prayer segment, maybe you've heard the term prayer posture before. We're gonna spend a few weeks in this little mini internal series talking briefly about a variety of things that fall under that umbrella of that term prayer posture. So first today, we're gonna talk about something that seems really simple, closing our eyes. I have been asked, do I really have to close my eyes when I pray in order to, quote, do it right? If you grew up in the church, you were probably taught as a child to close your eyes during prayer. But is that a requirement? Or is it a social norm or a cultural norm? The Bible talks about eyes only a few times as they relate to prayer. On two occasions, Jesus is mentioned lifting up his eyes to heaven when speaking to God. And we'll see it in uh, John 11, verses 41 through 42. This is right as he is raising Lazarus from the dead. It says, So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they might believe that you sent me. And then in John 17, 1 and 2, it says, Jesus spoke these things looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son might glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. So those are the two instances where it talks about Jesus looking up to heaven. Luke 18, 13 gives another perspective on this looking up to heaven thing. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, raising our eyes to heaven would certainly be an acceptable posture if Jesus did it. But scripture doesn't specify that we should always or shouldn't always. The tax collector was described as being all about show in, that, in the passage surrounding what I read. His lifting his eyes would have taken his eyes off of the world around him and it indicated what his focus was and that it was not God. And that gives us some clues about why we might do it. Here are some reasons that we might close our eyes to eliminate distraction as a social cue when we're among other people, letting others know that we are in prayer, to detach ourselves from the things of this world, to help us focus inward on things unseen. And interestingly, closing our eyes is not unique to Christianity. It's found in other cultures and other religions, though the modern prayer postures often differ from early Christians. So to answer the question, do we have to close our eyes? No, I often pray when I drive, or walk, and closing my eyes in that situation would be dangerous. But here on this broadcast, I almost always do, mostly so that I am not distracted by my screen, by comments, or by my own movements that I see on screen, or distracting myself, and what, <laughs> what is my hair doing today, or you know any of those things that, that might happen if my eyes were open. So closing our eyes isn't a biblically mandated thing. You aren't doing it wrong, in quotes, either way. There are times when your communication with God might be enhanced by closing your eyes, and there are times when it would be enhanced by keeping them open. So I would encourage you to actually think about where your focus is, whether or not your heart and your prayer will be enhanced by closing your eyes or not, whether you feel like 
prompted by God to do so, to do one or the other at any given time. So it is more about intention uh, than, than following some kind of strict guidelines about something that someone taught you in Sunday school. All right. That's that. Let's get, and I should say, let me add this. If you have any questions about prayer postures, about anything else with prayer, you can drop them in the comments or you can send them to M, the letter M for my name at graceinthegravelroad.com. And I will, I will gather those together and we can, I can use those as prompts for this portion of the show. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Worship this morning. We are in Psalm 145.9 today. And that says, the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's pray. Father, I specifically chose this to remind my heart that you are good and your mercy is over all things. Pray that your goodness would feel very real to to me and to those listening today. It's not just an intellectual concept, uh, a statement that this is about your character, that you are good. This has direct impact on my life and on everyone listening. You are good. You intend good things for your people. Certainly our circumstances aren't always good, but you always are. And you will always work things out for the good of your kingdom. And I pray that as we walk through circumstances in each of our lives, whether they are full of joy right now, or full of heartache, or full of tears, or full of um, sadness, or full of uh, just angst and anxiety and difficulty. I pray that we would remember your goodness, and that we would choose to walk in that and trust in that, and that we would not be carried away with the things around us, but keep our eyes and our hearts focused on the one who is good and who has uh, mercy over all that he has made. That is you, that is me, that is the world around us, that is everything that we see. We pray that your mercy would invade our hearts, that it would saturate all of our thoughts and our emotions and the things that we, that we do and see and say. You are good. Father, help us to understand what an impact that has in our life. And we celebrate your goodness today. No matter what my circumstances look like, I I say, I believe, I know that you are good. I'm grateful that (laughs) that that is part of your character, that that is who you are. And I'm thankful for that this morning. As we step into this prayer time, I ask that you would guide my mouth, guide the things that I say, that if there is something that I am going to say that is wrong, that you would just keep it in, that you would only allow truth to come through my lips this morning, that you would teach each of our hearts and the things that we need to hear from this scripture today. Pray that you would accept this time as an offering to you and that we might celebrate and honor you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are going to cover two main themes from Esther today and two next week. I was going to hit all four today and I think it got way too big. (laughs) So I thought, all right, we're going to slow this down a little bit. We'll cover two more 
next week. Today we're going to cover the themes, the ideas of fasting and feasting and reversals, divine reversals. And next week we'll look at the idea of living in exile or the kingdom and the true king and the hiddenness of God is not the absence of God. So those are the two things we'll cover next week. I'm going to comment on each theme before we pray about it. So we're going to start with feasting and fasting. It can be argued, (laughs) but I find 10 banquets in this book or the idea of feasting. Um, There's a... a an account that I can't remember right now, and I forgot to make a note of it. But the word for feasting or banquet is used in the book of Esther so much more often, more frequently than in the whole rest of Scripture. I think it's like 10 times in the rest of Scripture and 24 times in Esther now. Those numbers might be wrong. (laughs) So don't quote me on the numbers. Just get the concept. It's very prevalent in this book, uh, more so to a degree than in the rest of Scripture. I'm using banquet as the as a as a term for gathering over food and drink. So some people say that there's eight banquets. I'm going to say that there's ten, and they are the king's banquet that began the 180 dis- days display of his wealth and his power in the very opening paragraph of the book. The king's seven day banquet at the end of that 180 days. Queen Vashti's banquet for the women that went on at the same time as that seven day banquet. The banquet given in honor of Esther being made queen. The private banquet between Haman and the king at the signing of the decree to kill all the Jews. This was at the height of Haman's power. The first banquet that Esther gave for the king and Haman, and then she gave a second one in which she denounces Haman. The public banquet that was given to elevate Mordecai to the rank of second in command over the kingdom. The banquet celebrating the Jewish victory in the provinces and one celebrating the Jewish victory in Shushan. So there was uh, one that went through the entire kingdom and then one that was simply in Susa. So the first two banquets serve to exalt the king. They celebrate his wealth and his power. And the last two banquets celebrate the victory of the Jews, celebrating essentially the true king. There is a banquet for each woman, Vashti as she is removed as queen and Esther as she becomes queen. There's a private banquet with the king and Haman as Haman is at the peak of his influence. And there is a public banquet elevating Mordecai to Haman's position. And in the midst of these gatherings, we have two that Esther hosts for the king. So we have this kind of balance between these banquets and, and, and that they're related in groups. Feasting provided a narrative function in this story. So as a writer, it's a narrative device as events unfold, but it also provides a framework for the reversals that we see as a foundation for the Feast of Purim that the book explains, and also a reminder that what we celebrate is of critical importance. Punctuating these feasts are a series of fasts. While feasting is an activity of the whole of the culture, both Persian and Jew, fasting is a Jewish activity alone. The Jews fast when the edict that they were going to be killed is made public, and Esther asks them to fast as she prepares to approach the king. We're going to use two verses to pray from. (laughs) There were a lot that I could have chosen, so we're going to use these kind of as representative. The first is Esther 1 through 3 through 4, and the second is Esther 4, 16. So here's what uh, the first, and this occurs in the very first paragraph of the book of Esther. In the third year of his reign, he, and they're talking about the king Ahasuerus here. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his 
royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And then fasting, Esther 4.16, where Esther says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king. Though is it against the law, and if I perish, I perish. All right. Let's pray through this idea of feasting and fasting and what this book has to say for us today. Father, what we eat, who we eat it with, and how we celebrate is something that we as um, as Christians, but also just as humans, participate in every day. This is a thing that every culture has. We have celebrations and we have feasting. I pray that as we think about the celebrations in our life, we had one, uh, we had actually two yesterday kind of national cultural celebrations. We had Father's Day and we had Juneteenth. And as we think about the things that we celebrate, I pray that you would guide us to celebrating the right things and quote, right meaning God honoring things. Help our lives to be about celebrating you and your glory and not about celebrating the things that uh, the Persian royalty celebrated in the feasts that they held. They were way concerned with their own riches, their own glory, their own splendor, and their own greatness. The description of the seven-day feast that happened after this one was all about the the word completely just escaped me, about showing off all of the the power and the riches and the um, materialism of the culture that they lived in, of the royal household. Certainly, we can do a lot that celebrates that in our own life, or we can choose to celebrate the things of God. And I pray that we would be doing that that we would be thinking about the things of God in our celebrations, in our rhythms of celebrations throughout the year, not only in kind of the big two, the Easter and Christmas celebrations, um, as we as we think about how we do that in the midst of a culture where those have become secular holidays as well. But as we mark our lives, as we mark the months, as we mark our seasons, help us to learn to celebrate your Uh, activity in our lives, your glory, your work in the world, and, and all that you have done for us in the midst of those celebrations. Help us to center our lives around that instead of the celebrations of our own uh, wealth or power or influence or fame or any of the other things uh, (laughs) that are basically not God. And help us to learn to value those celebrations over the celebrations of our own selves, of our own wealth or power. Father Esther's reaction to the request and the understanding that uh, that was her going into the king and, and what that would do resulted in her requesting a fast. This was a Jewish activity. This is a faith-filled activity. This is go and gather those and, and have our people pray for me, fast for me. This was a seeking after you. Fasting isn't something that we're familiar with in this culture. It's not something that we practice. Even in many churches, we don't practice this. It is a essentially a, a, a staying away from something that 
we think of that gives us life and turning to the thing that life, that the place that life really comes from, turning away from our physical towards our spiritual. And it allows us to focus on that. It allows us to intentionally choose and it allows us to elevate the spiritual in importance over the physical. Esther requested that her nation fast and seek after your heart. And I pray that we would, um, that you would give us a new picture of this practice, that we would be drawn to seeking after you in ways that we might not be familiar with. Uh, fasting, being unfamiliar to many, might open the doors toward to a, a deeper experience of your presence. It might help us focus on you in a way like we talked about closing our eyes can help us focus. It's a dedicated time devoted to you and away from our physical bodies. I pray that that we might consider that practice, that you would speak to each one of us about how fasting might be incorporated into our own spiritual practice. I also pray that the idea that Esther used here, the concept of before I do this thing, I want to seek after you, your heart. I want to seek you. And you promise when we seek you, we will find you if we seek you with our whole hearts. Fasting is a way to invite our whole hearts into that process, but help encourage us in the practice of seeking in general, knowing that before we do, we need to seek. Before we act, we need to talk to you. We need to slow down that process of how we move through the world and be careful that we are doing it with intention. It's really about intention. And so I pray that you would help us work that into our own lives, this idea of intentionally seeking you. Whether it's done in fasting or whether it's done in another way, help us to seek after you, not just before big decisions and, and big uh, scary things like Esther was facing, but in, in the small things too, in the how do I move through my day, help us to pause and seek. In, in forming opinions, in forming attitudes, in forming behaviors. Help us learn to seek you first. Amen. All right. The next topic is divine reversals. Reversals are another both literary device and deeper thematic element in this book. We see smaller scale reversals like an orphaned girl of an ethnic minority becoming queen of the whole kingdom in Esther's case. We see power shifts in the kingdom like the rise and fall of Haman and the rise and fall of Mordecai. And we have large-scale reversals like a minority people condemned to genocide triumphing over their enemies. Writer Judah Gabriel Himango talks about it this way. I'm going to read a fairly long quote. He says, Divine reversal is God having the final say, God intervening in human affairs to make his way triumph over what wicked people think and do. Divine reversal is God not only undoing an ugly or difficult situation, but transforming it into a great event in which the participants are vindicated and God is glorified. Divine reversal is a signature of God throughout the scriptures. It happens consistently throughout the Bible and is evident everywhere in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the very historical context in which the book takes place is a kind of divine reversal. It is set during the Jewish exile in Babylon or Persia. Between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of Israel were set to be like every other people on earth, conquered, assimilated, gone from history, just like every other people group, just like every other religion. But God steps in, 
and divinely reverses the situation, end quote. If the plot of Haman had been carried out, there would have been no more Jewish people. That would have meant no Jesus, no gospel, no saving of the Gentiles, no church, no Bible, no Christians. But that was not God's plan. So thankfully for the Jewish people, as well as for us, we have this grand reversal. So for a verse to pray together, we're going to go with Esther 9.1 about this. And 9.1 says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. All right. Like I said, I could have picked a thousand verses in this book, so we're going to use this one. (laughs) Just one. All right, Father, thank you for this theme throughout not only the book of Esther, but, but we see it in scripture often as well. This idea of divine reversal of not only your triumph, but your transformation of things that seem hopeless, that seem uh, terrible, that seem chaotic into something full of hope, full of beauty, full of life. We have your triumph over death in giving us life. And as in the book of Esther, as it says in this verse, when it looked the most hopeless for the Jewish people, when this edict was about to be carried out, you transformed it. The reverse occurred, this passage says. The reverse occurred. And I pray for you to make those reversals in our own life come to light, where we see death bring life, where we see chaos and confusion bring order and peace, where we see trouble bring goodness, where we see hopelessness and bleakness and darkness bring your light and your hope. Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance. And I pray that in all the areas of our own lives where we need you to reverse it, I pray that you would do so, that your power would be released in ways that bring life from death, order from chaos, hope from hopelessness. I pray that in the midst of those times when it seems darkest to us, that we remember these reversals, that we remember all of the instances in Esther, where you took something and you reversed it, this poetic justice that you're fond of. Pray that we would remember that and be given hope, that it would cause us to step out in trust as we move through difficulty or chaos or sadness or depression or anxiety, all of the the ways that our world feels chaotic just keeps coming to mind, uh, but not just confused, but dark. I pray that you would bring light in big ways, like saving the Jews from annihilation, and in small ways, which doesn't feel small to feel like Esther went from being an orphan child into a queen of the kingdom. But when you compare it to the whole of the Jewish nation, one life seems small. Our lives can feel small, but Father, they are ours, and we need your reversals in our own lives as well. So bring light, bring hope, bring peace, where the opposite exists. Help make us instruments of your reversal in others' lives as well. Mordecai was that instrument in Esther's life. Even the king was that instrument in Esther's life. Like You use people as your hands and feet here to change circumstances of others. Help us learn to live and love in ways that bring your divine reversals to 
practice or to reality in this place that we live right now. Help us learn to trust and walk in the knowledge that you are the king of reversals, that divine reversal is one of your specialties. In Jesus' name, amen. That is all for today, friends. Thank you so much for joining me. I know it's been a break and it's hard to get back into the routine, perhaps. If you're watching here on the Grace of the Gravel Road Facebook page, we'll be back again next Monday is my plan and talk about two other themes for the, the big picture part of this book. And if you are planning to come back, share it with a friend and invite them to join you. If you're a podcast listener and this break was a little bit less documented because I would mention it on the Facebook page. Know that you can always go to the Grace and the Gravel Road Facebook page in order to get an update if if something seems off, like a three-week break with no, with no uh, warning. But thank you for being here. I appreciate you joining us in that format as well. Praying Scripture is brought to you by Grace and the Gravel Road, and my heart is, is that we do this together, that we would grow in our prayer lives, that we would see God answer these prayers in our own lives in mighty ways. But most of all, I pray that you will fall deeper in love with the God who gave us these words. Amen. Amen.